Press play. Curtain of an hour in. It's time to take spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got nom? They have to know. Oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. Drama. Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life in, in New, New York, York City. City. I am Connor McDowell. And I'm Dylan McDowell, and I am freaking out. We have an amazing guest today. I, I need to refrain from jumping right into it, but Connor, it's 2021, and you have some things to say. When we were talking earlier, we were like, oh shit, what should we talk about you know, today on the mm-hmm. podcast? Because sometimes we record really far in advance, but today we're before recording the week up. Yeah. yeah, before it airs. But we were talking, we're like, well, there's been so much that's happened and it's only been, you know, a week and a half of 2021, you know, just a few hits from what's happened this year. Kim and Kanye announced their divorce, which doesn't matter too much to me, but it's interesting because the internet seems to believe that Kanye cheated on Kim with Jeffree Star, the YouTube makeup artist, and Jeffree Star is tweeting jokes about it. So, I mean, could life get stranger? What else is, I mean, there was a white supremacist attack on the U.S. Capitol, which I never saw that coming. No, but apparently they did, which is drama. I don't want to get too much into it, but we can talk about it later. We can talk about it later. And but there was also an election already this year, and it went blue. Yes, which is amazing. So, I mean, good things. A little bit of positivity that got like swallowed up, definitely, almost immediately. But but still thrilled. And also, Harry Styles is officially dating Olivia Wilde, which to me is drama. Well, to me, it's drama because One Direction had a song called Olivia years ago. Yes, that's right. Okay, wait, was that Mm -hmm. from their last album or the one that still had Zayn on it? Zayn was still on it, but it wasn't the album that, um, it was like four. The album was called Four, but there were still five members who recorded that album. That's such an uncreative album title. (laughs) Like it was their fourth album, so we'll call it Four. I mean, Beyonce did the same thing. Maybe it's like a, a trend. She did that with an album called Four? Yeah, doesn't she have an album called Four? But it's like the Roman numerals. It's the one that has like one plus one on it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Wait, so was that the album then that... So Olivia is on that album. Zayn was on the record, but not on the tour. Because I always get confused. Mm-hmm. This is just I know, much, I know. Too much. Let's let's jump in. We need we we need to have precious time with our guest. I don't want to waste. I time. know. Oh my god. All right, I'm gonna read them in. Please do, Dylan. I'm so excited. All right. Our guest today is a two-time Tony Award nominee, most recently for best performance by an actor in a leading role in a musical for creating Charlie Price in Kinky Boots on Broadway, as well as best performance by an actor in a featured role in a play for Journey's End, for which he also received a Theatre World Award. You'll recognize him in films The Post, Flags of Our Fathers, Inside Lewin Davis, Die, Mommy, Die, Shall We Dance, 1114, and the upcoming In Limbo. On TV, you'll know him from being the star of Fox's Minority Report, HBO's Six Feet Under, the miniseries Generation Kill, NYC 22, Nip Tuck, and so much more. Back on stage, he starred as Tunny in American Idiot, To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, created the titular role in Bonnie and Clyde at La Jolla, starred alongside Anne Hathaway and Audra McDonald in Twelfth Night in the Park, The Tempest, Nathan the Wise, and will be starring in Swept Away, a new musical with music by the Avid Brothers. He is a Grammy winner, Christmas card designing extraordinaire, and a personal hero of ours. Please welcome to drama, Stark Sands. 
Hey guys, thank you for that. Uh, can I get that? Would you email me that? What yeah. you just wrote? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it makes me feel good when in times like this. Oh my God. I love, I'm so happy you're here, Stark. Me too. Thank you. And, and thank our friend Nathaniel Hill for linking us together. I know. Yes. He's amazing. When we had him on, he talked all about Broadway Plus and how Kinky Boots was what started it all with yeah, the experiences. I, it, was, it was really lovely. I got an email from uh, stage management, company management saying, Is it a, would you be okay with us connecting you with this person? And of course, Daryl Roth produced Kinky Boots and he had just been working for Daryl Roth. So that was the connection right. there. And he emailed me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this and meeting people? And of course, I, I, I see that meeting people after the show as, um, as one of the perks of the job because uh, that, that was me, you know, when I was younger and when I would get the chance to go to New York and see shows, like I know what it is to stand outside and wait and get an autograph and take a picture. And um, so it's a, it's a win-win um, to be on the receiving end of that. And uh, unless, you know, unless there was a conflict or I had a big group. Uh, so I did it quite a few times with Nathan, uh, with Nathaniel over the, over the years and the, over the shows. I oh, love that's it. So amazing. Yeah, he's great. He, he's been a huge supporter of the pod and he made this happen. So we're thankful. You know, we've got to ask, are you doing well? How, how are things going? I'm well. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's like a, I have a muted sense of, um, of celebration because like you said in the, um, uh, like, like as, as what's happening right now, as, as we all know, um, there was a, a, a white supremacist uh, occupation of the Capitol building in D.C., um, but around the same time, the Democrats won both Senate runoffs. Mm-hmm. And so that was overshadowed. And yeah. when I feel the darkness of, of what has happened in recent days, um, that's what pulls me out of it. That mm-hmm. and the combination of the sort of repercussions that are beginning to come to the people who perpetuated that attack without yes. naming names. So. Right. Um, so I am well, I'm really well. And I look forward to this sort of these, you know, getting these, this time that we're living through behind us. And I think mm-hmm. it'll take a long time, but I just getting a new administration in <sighs> that White House will feel really good. I, I agree. agree. It's coming. Couldn't have said it better. I saw, I saw a funny, I mean, I guess it's funny, but a video of one of the terrorists being told he was on a no-fly list at the airport when he was trying to leave DC and he was having a meltdown. So, I heard about this, yeah. So there's slowly these repercussions. Hopefully we get a, another impeachment and removal in the next two weeks. In my opinion, um, what he has done over the years deserves that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, if I were a Republican senator, especially one of the ones who wants to run for president in four years, I think it would be in my best interest to impeach this person because then they would no longer be allowed to hold public office. And right. if he's not impeached, he could run again. And we don't in four years, who knows what could happen? This could all be in the past and it, there could be enough theories out there to convince people that this didn't even happen. Or if it did happen, it happened with, uh, you know, crisis actors and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he could run again and he could win again. And that's the thing that to me is like, how could you not um, want this person just gone from the system? It's clearly it didn't work. It was an experiment that did not work. Right. Complete failure. That's a, such a good point. Oh, my God. Could you imagine having to revisit like another set of Trump years a couple, down the line? I can't. I, I mean, I, uh, one thing this has taught me is that we, this country can survive a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminded me that presidencies are temporary. 
Yeah. Right now, maybe he didn't want his to be. I think what he really wanted was to just be installed for for the rest of his life. Um, but in this country, presidencies are ephemeral. They happen, and then usually it switches and it swings back and forth between right. the different parties, and we get through it and we survive it. And I know that that people are disenfranchised, and there are bad things that happen, but then there are good things that happen. And and just I try to I try to take a longer look at it than to be mired in the despair when it's uh, when it's despairing. That's that's honestly inspiring. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we have an update on everything that's going on. I, I don't want to be too overzealous, but I have a good feeling that that actions are going to be taken. It seems like it. So just out of curiosity, so you're married to someone who is Australian, right? No, yeah, English. 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 Okay. Yes. So is there some dual citizenship happening? Could you hypothetically flee, have fled the country? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I definitely could. My, my kids have dual citizenship. I have two kids, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, my wife has dual citizenship uh, because she, you know, took, she took the test and, and lived here long enough. Wow. Speaking of your family, we, we have been grateful to be sort of indoctrinated, indoctrinated into the the family Christmas card series you shared them all with us and I mean how were your holidays was how was the most recent one received man I for, for anybody listening who doesn't know um I, I, when my wife and I got together she's English she uh Christmas cards are not a thing in England it's not something that people exchange I'm from Dallas, Texas. And so I would, uh, in our first Christmas together, I started getting this mail from my family and, and friends, but especially like my, my Texan family, cousins and things. And it was like very cheesy, you know, people with their boots and their jeans and their button up white shirts with their hands on their hips in a blue bonnet field, uh-huh. you know, everybody <laughs> in the same outfit. And she just thought it was hysterical and, and said, well, let's do one of these, but let's make, let's like do it as a joke. And so our first one was us in really bad Christmas sweaters with bad hair. It was like a, it's like a, an alternate version reality of us, and it was just a single picture. And we printed it out and mailed it to the people that we cared about and our friends and our loved ones. And I'd never done a Christmas card before outside of since I was a kid in, in my family, and it was very well received. That was two thousand and nine. Okay. And every year people say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it became this this um, responsibility that I felt to like up my game every year. And if you want to look at them, you can go to my Instagram. I don't post a lot, but a year ago, I decided that I would just post uh, all of them sort of one after the other. So there's a chain that you'll see in uh, just a, in, in order from 2009 to last year. And they get crazier and crazier and oh, stupider. Yeah. <laughs> we, our mantra is if it makes us laugh out loud when we're, when we're coming up with the idea, then it goes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't, then we should keep, keep trying for something funnier. Um, a lot of times it's more stupid than, than funny, but I think stupid equals funny a lot, a lot oh, of the yeah. time. So to answer your question now, that's the context. This year um, we did, uh, the idea was to do a horror movie poster. <laughs> and because there's no work happening and because I, I didn't have anything to do, we decided to, to, I decided to shoot a, a trailer for this made up movie called The Ghosts of Christmas Cards Pasts. And since it's been 12 years, we have all these costumes in the basement like in these boxes that we're not going to throw them away. Um, and so we, we put on many of these old costumes and I shot a full five minute trailer for a movie about us being haunted by the characters from these old Christmas cards. And it was really fun. It was the most fun I had all year. Um, and I will, I, I'm going to post that as well. I'll try to do that in the next few days. So uh, people who want to can go and watch it because I'm proud of it. 
It is unreal. It is so good. We watched it multiple times. It is so good and terrifying. I scare yeah. I scare pretty easily though, I will say, but I was gasping. It was amazing, Stark. Like truly I was shook. It would be an amazing film, full film. So we need to get the um, producers up in here to fund this thing. Daryl Roth, where you at? Come on, Daryl. <laughs> no, I, what I loved about it too is, is if you do end up posting it, is everyone needs to look at the previous ones because it's yeah. so referential to everything that happens. It feels like an extended universe in many yeah. ways. Um, but I got to say my favorite one, my favorite one is, you know that Christmas is here and it's... Oh my God, it is so good. It's another video one. <laughs> That's the only other time we did a video and, and it was a similar circumstance where I had just finished my run in Kinky Boots. I did my first year. I did my year and when my contract contract ended, uh, Gemma and I, we really wanted to have kids and ha having a very busy Broadway schedule is not conducive to having kids, creating a family. So um, I, I, I let my contract end with everybody was completely okay with it. Uh, Billy stayed on for a while longer. And um, I retreated and didn't work. It was like I, our whole relationship, I had worked back to back to back to back jobs. And um, I just wanted to have time with her. And so in the course of the next several months, um, we were able to conceive uh, a, a baby and the video was originally just going to be a CD insert, right? What you, what, when people bought mm -hmm. CDs, the thing that would slide into the little slot in the front. <laughs> um, so a CD cover front and back. And of course, it just kept growing uh, like they all do. And this one uh, was, well, let's make a CD cover. And then, oh, well, you know what we could do? I got time. Let's like record a song. Let's write a song and record a song, like a parody of that kind of music. The band was, for us, was SNG, Stark and Gemma, SNG Music Factory. There was a band when I was younger called CNC Music Factory. And they had this style of music, which was like dance, hip hop, sort of like pop. And we decided to parody that. So then it was just a song and then it was like, well, why don't we just shoot the video? So bought a ton of costumes, <laughs> wrote the video, I edited it, we shot it and I, and I shared it and it became our baby reveal to all of our friends and loved ones as part of the song. And it's also there on the Instagram for people who want to watch it. It is very Beyonce at the VMAs when she did Love on Top and she pulls up and you see she's pregnant. It was very that. Seriously, it's a What wow. year was that? Do you know what year that was? Hmm. I wonder if we did it first. I'm you sure might have done it, it first. Oh, for us, it was 2014. I think she did it first. I think you're right. So maybe maybe there was a sort of inspiration from that. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. What a bop. Now, your kids are stars as well. Were they scared making the, the horror trailer? There has been a little bit of sort of echoes of, of this, you know, of this. When I originally started it, I thought, okay, I, I'll have them in the beginning when we're like opening Christmas presents. There's like a, a the first minute is us oh, like yeah. having Christmas. And I thought that I can get that I, I can just shoot and I'll get, I'll shoot from a few minutes and I'll cut, cut a very, very short segment of it. Cause for them, it was, you know, oh, two weeks before Christmas, having a fake Christmas and like opening a present. And I just filmed it and they loved it because it was like pre-Christmas. And then um, when I, the more I showed them, the more my son, who's, who's older, who's five, was interested in, in doing it. And I don't really want my kids to be actors. I, if they want to do it, great, but I'm not going to push them into it. Mm -hmm. But the more we did, the more he and she wanted to be a part of it. So now there's a scene where he says, Dad, there's, I think there's something in my room. And I run into the room and I say, oh, I'm sure. And I set the camera down. And of course, there is something under the bed. But I don't see it because I just set the camera on the ground. Uh -huh. But we did it 
three times maybe. And because I, I figured it would just be good enough. Um, and now he's a little bit scared of things in his room. It's not bad. Aww. All he wants is for us <laughs> to come in and tell him there's nothing in his room, uh-huh. of course not. And, and, and it's okay to be scared, whatever. But um, one thing that I'm careful about is putting their faces out on social media and talking yeah. about their names and things. So um, I what I'll probably do with the video is do a blur, just blur, just blur the scenes that they're in just a little, mm-hmm. just enough because, and it to each his own. I have a lot of friends who post lots of pictures of their kids and, you know, maybe if I didn't do what I do, I wouldn't think of it much, but I have a ton of people that I'm not like a huge Instagram star, but I have a lot of people, more people who don't, who I don't know than people who I do, who are my followers or whatever. Oh yeah. So I just feel like I want to be a little bit careful of that. And I want them to have um, ownership of their images. So whenever they're old enough to do that, if they choose to, they can decide if they want to do that stuff. That's oh, nice. I, love that. That's I very respect respectful. that so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, if you ever want to get into directing and, and writing, that is something that is up your street because the, every trope from like a horror movie or trailer was in this it was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something that I'm I'm, I'm working toward. Um, and 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 in the past, before the pandemic, was like, yeah, I want to produce because I, I always find myself being really invested in um, in making whatever project I'm in uh, as good as it can be. And sometimes that strays from my responsibilities into other areas that like scenes that I'm in or things, and I have to bite my lip because I I can't I, I don't want to step on anybody else's toes. Um, and now I am actively working towards um, producing and um, I'm, I'm sort of finding mentors in that field that will, that can help me. I, I, I know, I know a lot, but I just certainly don't know enough. Sure. And this is a time when things can be produced. Things can be um, developed, I should say, when there's no, nothing happening on stage. There are mm-hmm. plenty of things happening. Um, you know, over Zoom calls and conversations and ideas and time to stew and think. And um, so I have I have some uh, people I've worked with in the past that I'm, you know, connecting with and would love to produce at some point. And maybe that'll happen sooner than later now. Yeah, you never I know. I love it. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you have had such a wonderful career that just keeps going. And I want to get into all that, but I want to go back in time a little bit. We like to ask all of our guests about their ring of keys moment, which is that moment of recognition when they thought, I want to be involved in the arts in some way. It could be a book you read, a film you saw, maybe maybe even an onstage production. Do you feel like you had a ring of keys moment? Definitely. I switched schools after middle school. So from eighth to ninth grade, I switched from an all boys private school to a my, my local public, uh, high school. And because I didn't know really many people, um, my mom, her sister worked for the school district and knew about this tag theater arts class, right? Class, uh, tag, uh, uh, talented and gifted. Now I didn't do that. I hadn't really done much of that before, but, uh, but my aunt knew that it would be a way to like make friends in a, in a fun environment, in a class where you're going to be silly. You're going to do silly theater games. There's kids from all four grades, freshman through senior. And it's just like a way in where you can have a place where you feel comfortable. I didn't know that I'd be any good at it, but um, I had to audition. And because I knew nothing about theater, I, uh, uh, I knew I had to come in with a monologue and, um, and, and just, you know, read it to the theater teacher, Mrs. Linda Raya. Um, 
And so I thought I'd be clever and brought in a, a cereal box. And I read like the thing on the back of the cereal box <clears throat> because I thought, oh, nobody will do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I did. And she sort of politely sat there and nodded her head. And when I was done, she was like, okay, um, thank you for that. Take a look at this. And she handed me Romeo and Juliet and a, um, one of the Tybalt monologues. And I... I was like, oh, okay. She said, take this outside, read it for a few minutes and just come back in when you're familiar with it and let's do it again. So I did that and she let me into the class and that became, she became my mentor at school, my like theater mom, my, my school mom. I spent all my free time, a lot of my free time hanging out in her office with her. I started, uh, it, it worked. I made a lot of friends in the class and I, my very first production was uh, <laughs> uh, The Sound of Music. Classic. Uh, yeah, I was Kurt. Mm. Uh, Kurt, I'm incorrigible. Von Trapp. Yeah, uh-huh. oh, there you go. <laughs> and um, that was my big line. And um, I remember being so nervous, so nervous before I got out there. And of course, this is like several weeks or months into the school year. Um, so I, I was comfortable in the class, but all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, I'm on stage. But as soon as I stepped out of the wings and the lights hit me and I was in front of the audience, the, the, the those butterflies just evaporated and I felt so comfortable and so confident and I felt like myself definitely that moment was my ring of keys moment for sure wow I love it special and shout out to Mrs. Raya Mrs. Raya who's so special and she had been there a long time and was there a long time after and she's since retired um uh there's a very famous Pulitzer Prize winning writer named Doug Wright um who also had Mrs. Raya at the same school it went at the, at the, in the early part of her career. So Doug and I have bonded over that over the years, not just both being from Dallas, but both having this special person who was our, um, our mentor. That's so fun. I yeah. love that. Did she ever get a chance to come see you on Broadway? She has. Yes. And I have gone back to school and I've done little master classes, you know, at, at school. And um, if it feels really good to go back and have, be somebody who, uh, I remember when I was in high school and the, the, the students who were just, studying theater in college, you know, who I remembered from when I was a freshman and they were seniors and then I'm a junior and they come back and, you know, they're, they're sophomores in college and they're, and they're studying it. And I was just, I was just in awe of these people that were like actually going for it. And so Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's special to go back and to carry that mantle and be somebody people uh, can look up to in that way. Oh, That's beautiful. When I've got a question, what is, what is like the, the story behind your name? Like when your parents named you, they had to have known you were going to be famous. <laughs> the story behind my name, and actually this is something that, um, that I can loop into. One thing that you did not uh, have when you listed all my credits, not actually a work credit, it's a, a, like a person credit. Um, I have a twin brother. Oh. You might be the first twin we've wow. ever had on the pod. Yeah, twin club, go twins. I, know. I love it. Go twins. So, the reason I bring it up is because when my mom knew she was having twins, um, she knew she wanted one of her sons to have a name from her side of the family and one from dad's side of the family. And so her, her maiden name is Stark. She was Ramona Stark. And so she, uh, since I was blonde and my brother Jacob was a brunette, uh, he got the, the other side. I got my mom's family name. I love it. I love it. You're your fir- your first and your Last name or both Game of Thrones names as well. I know. <laughs> you know. 
you know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big, big game of Thrones fan. I was a fan of the books. Uh, I'm, and then I became a fan of the series when my wife finally agreed to watch it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but back oh, to the yeah. twin thing, what I have, yeah. I have can I ask please, you guys a question? Please, of course. Right. So I wonder if this happens to you. My brother and I, uh, for our whole lives, have had these moments of like, you know, um, psychic connection, right? And uh, one example that I can give is when I was probably seven. Um, I happened to be in the early stages of taking piano lessons uh, at a piano teacher's house. Um, just me one-on-one and my brother at that time was in a gymnastics class and I don't know why we were doing different things but that actually says a lot because we're very different guys okay I wasn't a big fan of the class or the teacher or something and maybe it just wasn't for me at the time and so I I think I uh, wasn't into it and I complained about taking the class Uh, and one day I started complaining because my arm I was like my arm hurts my arm hurts and the teacher was like Stark I've been sitting here with you this whole mm-hmm. time. You didn't hurt your arm. You're fine. And I was like, no, it hurts. <laughs> and, and then it, when, it, when it was over, uh, when the class ended, my mom didn't show up. And this is before cell phones. There was this, this is when, at a time whenever it was like, if somebody was 10 minutes late, it wasn't a crisis. It was just like, oh, I guess they've got held up. Mm-hmm. My mom was like 15 minutes late. So she walks in a little bit stressed. She's like, I'm so sorry I'm late. I'm, you know, Stark's brother had a little, a little accident in gymnastics class and I uh, just had to take care of that. And now, now you know, Stark's dad is taking him to the, just, just to go get his arm looked at. And I was like, what happened? And she said, oh, he fell and he hurt his arm. He, I think he's, I think he's broken his arm, but he's okay. And I was like, which arm uh, it was his right arm and i was like mom you're not gonna believe this and of course i told her i was like my arm started hurting when was it and of course both of them sort of at the in the moment we're, we're like okay whatever yeah, but, yeah um but i firmly believe with that and other examples of simple things like you know that thing where you will have a song stuck in your head and you're not with your brother mm-hmm. and that song and you're not even singing it out loud it's just in your head and you guys go into the same room and you're talking whatever and then you go back to doing what you're doing and then the other person starts singing or humming the song that was in your head mm-hmm. Ever, right. ha- oh that happened All yesterday i said wait were you singing that i'll say that i'll be like were you just singing whatever the song is he'll be like no, but it was in my head it happens, that happens all, all the time, time. We, we do have those psychic moments like what he'll text me and he'll be like i have a feeling something's wrong and I'll be like, wait, how did you know? Like, it's really, or there was one mm-hmm. time, which I don't want to get too many into the details, but at like seven in the morning once, Dylan called me. We weren't together. And he was, he was like, something happened. And I was like, I was in Dayton, Ohio with my boyfriend. And I happened to get up at like seven in the morning. And Connor was in New York. Okay. And something woke us both up that we don't need to talk about on pod, but it was very spooky that I was like, what's going on right now? But nothing as serious as the arm situation. That actually gave me yeah. full body chills, but that's wild. It was great. And then when I was in college, I went to school at USC um, in California, in Los Angeles. And so there were, uh, you know, it's a place where earthquakes happen. Mm-hmm. And one night I was still awake very late because it was like a weekend and I was in college and all of a sudden the, my room started going like this and I ran into the living room of my apartment that I shared with my two friends and the chandelier was swinging and it was my first earthquake experience oh. and it wasn't a big one and it wasn't like it was scary but it wasn't dangerous and um, about a minute later my brother called me okay wow. my brother who's in Kansas who it is and is out it is two hours later in Kansas yeah so it was like five in the morning for him and he was all groggy. He was like, what's, what's going on? I was like, you, why did you call me? He goes, I don't know. I just, whoops, I felt like I had to call you. 
So an, a, another example that you guys get. It's nice to talk to people about it. this because I, I tell these stories. People are like, wow, that sounds interesting. But mm-hmm. it's nice to actually have somebody yeah. who knows it, who gets it. Yeah. In some ways, it's a fun party trick to like tell things like that. And everyone's always gagged and like, oh, my gosh. But in other it ways, it's real. real. It, it's very much real. And I have it with certain friends too. It's not as yes. strong, but definitely have that thing where you're thinking about somebody and they call. Yeah. Yes. You know, or just like uh, much more simple examples. But um, I totally believe that we are all connected with some like web of energy or something where mm-hmm. it's, it's not, I don't think it's within our minds to actually really comprehend it, but the, there are enough examples for me that, um, that I believe that, that we're all connected. I like do that. too, 100%. Yeah. That's so fun. Oh, that's so cool. Well, yeah, it's like people say like that horoscopes aren't necessarily real, but the stars and everything, the moon controls the water and we're all made of water. And so there's got to be something to that too. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. My thing with horoscopes is that because my brother and I are, were born on the same day, that, that when at least the general horoscopes, the one in the newspaper, uh-huh. I always look at that and I'm like, we are so different. We're so uh-huh. different. You know, he lives on, on like on a giant ranch in Kansas. I say giant, oh, wow. what I mean is just like spacious. He has uh-huh. a lot of land because it's not ex- as expensive to own land. <laughs> of course. In the middle of, in the middle of the country. And, and, um, and he has four kids and he, he lives like a really quiet but awesome like outdoorsy life and i know like where i'm sitting right now it's, it looks like i do too it does that it fireplace does. behind me <laughs> um but uh that's really good for the pod i'm sure everybody really really oh, yeah, relate yeah, yeah. to what they're not looking at um uh but but i i guess the horoscope thing for me is always like well we're so different. How could it relate? How could it work on us? But I know that there's different layers of it, right? There's like down to the, down to the minute. It is. Although mm-hmm. Dylan and I, we are, ours is the same down to the, because we're like technically a minute apart. So sometimes I look at it and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this really relates to me, but I do know it relates to Dylan. So I don't know. I, I get quite into it though. I have to admit, like every time I go on a date, I have to like resist from asking them when their birthday is because I don't want to like look up our compatibility and stuff, you know? It's crazy. Although one, one, well, time, one time someone, it was, we had the same birthday. birthday, me and this guy. And we went out for a few months uh-huh. and we were, we clicked like crazy, like similar communication values, all this stuff. But I mean, it didn't work out for whatever reason, but I, I often wondered through it, like, was it because we were born on the same day? I mean, not in the same year, mm-hmm. but we had similar, I don't know, ways of life and perception and stuff. It was very interesting. There's got to be something yeah. to it, right? There has to be. Otherwise, yeah. it wouldn't be a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so, Stark, I want to jump in and talk to you about Kinky Boots. Because as you were talking about your wife, I know that you guys got together in 2009. Did she help you with your accent? I think that being married to her definitely, definitely helped. Definitely. And I could go to her... Um, I, I, I've done accents on other jobs and my first theater job in New York was Journey's End mm-hmm. where I played a young, you know, idealistic uh, British soldier. And so I had worked on it a lot for that job in 2007 and she and I met in 2008 and, and by the time 2013 rolled around, I had been living with her for many years. Uh-huh. So there were definitely times which I have to give her credit because there were certain jokes that Harvey had written that, um, that, were more American references, right? Mm-hmm. And touchstones than they were English. And so I was able to go to her and be like, what about this? And she'd be like, we wouldn't say that, right? <laughs> and, and so I was then able to, to suggest it to Harvey and he was very open to most, most everything um, and, uh, and made a few little tweaks and changes as a result of her input, which is pretty cool. I yeah. love it. I'm a dramaturg. I love it. 
<laughs> well, Kinky Boots is one of our favorite musicals of all time. And we were so lucky to be able to catch it when you came back into the show. Oh, it was immediately when it was announced, you guys were going back and you and Billy unmissable and it was truly one of my top five theatrical experiences we were in the very last row i think it's just a mezzanine there but i guess it's technically a balcony at the at the al hirschfeld slash martin beck but the um i know i know but soul of a man i'm surprised the roof was still standing at the end how did you sing that song let alone that score eight times a week so that that song uh is i'm so grateful that the song is in the show um, uh, regarding our return, so you know, um, Billy and I, once we were both out of the show, um, when the current but almost ex-administration moved in, um, one of the first things that they did uh, was to begin to uh, rescind the rights of trans people in the military and yes. started a, an assault on that. And... Um, these bathroom bills and things. Yep. And it was so offensive to me. And I called Billy and I mean, we talk often, but in one of these conversations, I was like, we should go back because I have to feel like I'm doing something to fight against this. And he was completely on board. And then I was doing a reading shortly after that, uh, that Daryl Roth was producing. And so I pulled Daryl aside at one of the sort of breaks and was like, what do you think about this? Billy and I coming back into the show. She was like, Hmm. So that's how it happened is that all of a sudden we were going back in for that just three months, but it felt mm -hmm. like a lot longer than that. And I'm so grateful to have had that return experience. It was three and a half years between when I left the show and when I went back to it, my life was very different, but the show did not change. And the vibe mm -hmm. in the theater and the response from the audience, it did not change. But that song uh, was one of the ones that had been written from the, from the beginning. Okay. Um, uh, there were some songs that were written over the course of the run, but that one uh, over the course of like the development period. But that one was one from the beginning. I have the early, you know, uh, demo of that with somebody, one of Cindy's friends singing it. And um, she was very, very specific about what she wanted from that song. And Cindy was coming from a world in which um, she was used to fighting for what she got as a as a solo female pop artist in the 80s and 90s and to present day. She's used to like, having to fight hard for things. So her methodology at the beginning was a little bit more aggressive and, and, and um, not as uh, sort of collaborative as, mm. as she mm -hmm. learned to be through the process. Sure. And I think that she would probably acknowledge this as well. Um, I'm, uh, I, I'm the kind of person who really wants to please my, my, my employers, my boss, the people I look up to. I want to do it right. So she would come to me and say, oh, you're doing it wrong. You got to sing it like Otis Redding meets The Squeeze <laughs> with Elvis Costello in there. And I was just like, oh, yeah, sure. Well, why don't you send me, some, send me a list of songs that I should be listening to? I did all of that, and I could just never make her happy about the song. And she'd come in. She'd come into my room into my dressing room right after the show went down in Chicago and she'd be like, Ugh, you do it. She always made these like, she was, it was like, I learned to get used to it, but that's not what we're used to in this world. No, no. Um, it was a good thing. It was a good thing because I learned how to deal with that kind of adversity and that and realize I can't take it personally. It's all she cares about is the song and making, like I care about making it as good as possible. Mm -hmm. She had an idea in her head about what it was going to sound like. And, and uh, I learned over time that that vessel, that my vessel was not capable of producing that exact sound that she was thinking of. She'd come in and say, you gotta, you gotta sing it on the beat. You gotta sit in the pocket. You gotta listen to the beat. You gotta listen to the rhythm. And I was like, okay, yes, yes, yes. And then like, oh, I would do that. And I would start singing right on the, 
right on the notes and right on the beats. And she would come back two weeks later and from being away and she could watch it again. And then she'd say, "Ugh, you're doing it wrong. Forget the beat, forget the rhythm, forget the melody. So finally I had to pull her aside and say, this is now when we were in New York on Broadway after like a a 10 week run in Chicago Mm -hmm. and a little break and then a short break and coming back doing it. We're we're deep into previews. And I just had to say to her, you have to let me have this now. I'm never going to do it the way that you imagine it, but I promise you I will do my best. You have to let me have this. I'm going to ask you to just let me do it now. I've taken all your notes on board. I love you. Thank you. This has got to come through me. Mm -hmm. The thing she said towards the end of those notes was, you gotta, you got to bleed, right? She goes, this song's got to make you bleed. It's got to cut you. And that was the thing, the phrase that unlocked it for me and that allowed me to find most nights um, some, uh, some deep emotional like release and tears and things like that. Um, now, the great thing about doing a show eight times a week is that once you unlock something, um, because you get to do it again and again and again, the song becomes attached to those emotions. And so uh, I, even just listening to the song, if I were to listen to it now, there's a moment in the song where I start getting emotional. My eyes start getting wet because of all the hundreds of times that I did it uh, in front of an audience, which is perpetuated by the audience feeling what you're really feeling, that shared experience that I miss so much of being on a stage or in the audience in a theater, mm-hmm. just in a theater where if somebody's really feeling something, I start feeling it. And, you know, it's not the same when you're watching something on TV or streaming or a movie or a TV show and nothing against any of that because all those things are very valid. But there's nothing like being in a theater and feeling that. So mm-hmm. thank you for saying that. It is of one of it is probably my all time uh, favorite moment being on a stage is being able to sing that song um, mm. in that show and as many times as I got to do it. So I'm very That's grateful. amazing. And I have to give you so uh, much. What a I know, story. I have to give you so much credit for. <laughs> I don't want to say standing up to her, but I suppose like putting your feet down and just saying what you believed about what had to happen with your performance, you know, that's really amazing. I had a good, um, uh, my inspiration for that was my co-star, Billy Porter, who, mm. you know, I would go and we hung out every, every day. We would hang out in my dressing room or his dressing room talk and, and I would express myself to him. And he was like, you know, he did, she never did it to him because number one, Billy was a recording artist in his own right. You know, Billy mm-hmm. was very much in that world of music as well as theater. And so she didn't, and also Billy, he's Billy Porter. Who's going <laughs> to go go after him? Um, uh, so I think, I think maybe I was the person that she was able to express her frustrations about, not just me, Annalie got it too. Lena got it. Like anybody who sung in that show, even just the chorus people, like the ensemble, everybody felt her, especially the, anybody who was running the board at the back of the theater. She was, it, the sound was so important to her. She was really, really hard on people. Um, and it, 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 with all the best intentions, I have to say, but Billy, Billy is the one who I saw and I was like, I just need to stand up. I, I stand up for myself, not stand up to her, but stand up for mm-hmm. myself. So that's, I, I don't know that I would have found it as uh, when I did, if it wasn't for Billy. Wow. And I mean, Billy Porter, who has just become everything. To, that was inevitable. Ever, I mean, yeah. it was totally inevitable. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I, I, uh, Billy had been gone for a while before right. Kinky Boots. He had like 10 years, his like, mm-hmm. um, his dry period, uh, what he would what he would call it, his lean years is what he would say, and so um, when we got together and I started doing my homework on him, I was like, oh wow, oh my god! I listened to that Grease, you know, the oh yeah, the, Teen the, Angel, but yeah, I mean, come on. So when it was happening, I was just like, this guy's meant for like not just theater stardom, but like 
big time superstardom. And of course it happened to, you know, when it did and he's not gonna, uh, he's not gonna stop. And I believe that he will become, you know, a cultural icon in, mm-hmm. in across the world because of his outspoken stance on all these different um, issues and his fashion and his, his fashion, yeah, his, <laughs> like you know his sass and his seriousness, and he just he can. Oh my god! That. I just remembered the night we saw you and Billy in Kinky Boots. It was the, that December. I saw Ryan Murphy in yeah. the crowd, and I was like, oh. I saw him leaving the restroom. Like, What's yeah. happening? And then I think maybe Billy was filming Pose at the time, or it came later. But I put the pieces together. Okay, he was filming Pose. So cool. Yeah. I remember that Ryan was there a lot and I worked with Ryan a long, long time ago and a show called Nip Tuck, Tuck. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we know each other and, um, but yeah, that story, Billy's story of, of, of how that happened is amazing. He walked into audition for a different part and, um, and he told Ryan Murphy, he was like, he's he's like, I'll, I'll read this for you, but you know, you need, you need like a mama hen in the show. You need somebody to, to run things. You need somebody who's been there. I've been there. I was alive. I, I, I lived through this. And Ryan was like, can I write a character that the character's not there? Well, can we follow you around and I'll write a character for you? That's a very wow. short version of the story. But yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. Billy became a part of Pose, which of course is the thing that changed yeah. his life. The, the, you know, the, well, it was the turning point, right? I mean, Kinky yes. Boots changed his life in a big way, but this was like the major boost. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's remarkable. Well, Ryan Murphy will have to write you into something down the line again, because... Nip Tuck was what, 2004, 2003, something like that. God. Yeah. It was just one episode. Okay. I was so grateful to be a part of anything that he's done. And, and yeah, he makes enough TV that I think I'll have a chance. You will. Uh huh. Now there's like a through line in your career too. You've played a lot of military men over the years. Is there any background in your family or anything like that, that sort of led to that or. I would chalk that up to, um, to a couple things. My first theater job, my, my first uh, soldier role was Journey's End. And that was on stage at the Belasco in 2007 from mm-hmm. January till like June. It was, it, we, we closed on the night of the Tonys. Oh, and, and you won Best Revival, right? The show won Best Revival. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the role for me was, was my first major like turning point in terms of I had been in L.A., I had, you know, I'd studied acting in college and I got my BFA in, in acting. And because I was in LA, I did, I went out for TV and film jobs and I chipped away at that. And I, and I, I did well and I, you know, uh, I made a living and felt good about my progression. And then I had an opportunity to travel to New York uh, because Jay Binder, the casting director, um, saw a movie that I was in. So actually I'm uh, this, uh, I misspoke. My first soldier role was a movie called flags of our fathers Mm -hmm. and Clint Eastwood directed it. And it had a really great ensemble cast. And I had a small to medium sized part as a young soldier who was stormed the beaches, you know, in Iwo Jima, but because I was in that movie and Jay, who was trying to find a young idealistic British soldier saw that movie he called my agent and probably other agents, I imagine, of other movies that had young soldiers in them. And he said to my agent, hey, would Stark, does, does he live in New York? Is he LA? Where is he? Would he ever want to come and audition for a Broadway play? And of course, I'm <laughs> sitting here, my agent tells me that and I'm like, let me buy my ticket. So <laughs> I flew to LA. Sorry, I flew to New York. I stayed on my buddy's couch and I auditioned for that job and I, uh, and I got it. And there, there's a long story that goes with that, but I'll spare you. <laughs> Um, and it was just one of those, I'll just say that it was one of those magical auditions where I could do nothing wrong. I I was exactly what they were looking for. 
and it was just because of what I brought. And so when I got the job, it wasn't as difficult as other jobs have been or, or had been because I didn't have to reach very far. I was a young actor who was in his first Broadway play making his debut. And I, all I wanted to do was just make everybody happy and do my best. And it's exactly the character that I was playing. It just substitute the army for theater, for Broadway. Um, so it was right there. I was living it. And um, so because I got those two in a row and then the movie came out and then the play, a lot of people saw the play, not as many as could have. It was a very underseen show because, um, you know, we were still in Iraq at that time. And, and oh. I don't think people wanted to see like what they perceived to be a downer of a, of a play about war. But it changed my life because of the um, accolades that came my way and, and, and towards the show. Mm-hmm. My hair kept having to be cut short for jobs. So while I was doing that job, a casting director named Alexa Fogel saw it and brought me in for Generation Kill, which was that HBO series about another you know, group of soldiers going into, uh, into Iraq from Afghanistan. And so I, I got it and I started, I continued to have this short haircut. So I think the short yeah. hair was part of it. And also that it, it happened to be the last thing that I had done. And so right. for a long stretch of time, all I did was play soldiers or military types or police or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, which is one of the reasons why my hair is so long right now, because I don't have to cut it <laughs> and I uh-huh. just want to let it go. The other I love reason it. Is, thank you. The other reason is for swept away, which is um, uh, the, the job that, I'm, that I have next that is not for a while. But uh, I need uh, Michael Mayer, the directors asked me to not cut it. So I'm going to do what he says. Well, of course, when Michael Mayer tells you what to do. <laughs> I remember seeing casting for Swept Away like a week before the world shut down. I feel like I saw like a Playbill announcement at the very end of February. Oh, man. I saw the Avet Brothers once. Yeah, really? Before a John Mayer concert in, a, a Cle- oh, in the yeah. Cleveland area in the summer of 2010. Yeah, they're great. Wow. They really they're are. Great. They're great. I feel very lucky to have had that job and for it to have been bumped as many times as it has and not just scrapped. Um, I did a workshop in the summer of 2019 um, with, with, you know, Michael, who I worked with on, uh, on American idiot and, and is, is a good friend and is somebody that I, you know, speak with often. It was supposed to be the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. And obviously that had to get bumped uh, out at Berkeley rep. It was, supposed to be then the summer of 2021 we just got call in december that it was now going to be bumped again to the winter of 2021 so a year from now okay. i will be in berkeley doing i probably tech for uh-huh. that show and i'm we'll see you there <laughs> oh man uh, you, the, the hope obviously is that it transfers and we yeah. get enough um you know that it's good enough to to make the jump and i hope it is but even if it's not just to be on a stage again oh yeah and that's it's just it's for people in the show right it's a smaller piece it's four actors it is about a, a group of sailors who are shipwrecked uh, or not shipwrecked but whose ship sinks and they end up on a lifeboat mm. and the what i've seen of the, the models and the design for this show the for the first like 30 minutes we use the whole stage and then after the storm there literally is a lifeboat that's going to be on a little swivel that's going to slowly like swivel on stay in the middle of the stage and there will be four act. We will not leave the lifeboat until the wow. end of the play. Wow! And, I mean, to me, that's terrifying because oh, I mean, yeah. you want space. You want you don't want people to get bored. But if anybody can make that work, it's oh really yeah, fun. oh yeah. And it's um your your brother in arms from American Idiot, uh, John Gallagher Jr. Yeah, another John hero. I, 
John is some, he is the person who introduced me to the Avid brothers back in 2010 when we were doing American idiot together. Uh, we, it was, it was a very, very close group and we did spend a lot, you know, the whole show we're all on stage together and, um, and off stage as well. And it was his favorite band. And he was like, you got to listen to this. So he told me about it. I got it. I started listening and I've been a fan ever since. So it's a really full yeah. circle moment for us. Now you, Michael Mayer directed American idiot as well, right? Yes. That's Can right. you talk to me about your American idiot experience? When did that, how did that come into your life? I should say. I was in La Jolla doing the first production of Bonnie and Clyde, like you guys mentioned. Yes. With our pal, Jeff Calhoun. That's right. I love Jeff. Yeah. I listened yeah. to that episode too. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I did, I did early workshops for Bonnie and Clyde in New York. And then I went and did it in La Jolla An amazing experience. The show at the time, just wasn't quite ready to make the transfer to Broadway. So um, when we were closing, Jeff made an announcement. He goes, we're not going straight to Broadway. So if you have other jobs that come your way, go for it. Don't wait. We will let you know as soon as we know where we're going to go next, in, in which case it became Florida, the, the next place they went. Okay. Um, but in the meantime, I auditioned for and I got the job of Tunney in American Idiot on Broadway. Now, while we were in La Jolla, American Idiot was at Berkeley Rep. Okay. And there was a different actor in that role. And for whatever reason, they re decided to recast the part. So I auditioned for it. Um, I went out and I did the callbacks. I got the job. I had called, when I got the offer, I called Jeff Calhoun and said, I want to, you're my first call, but I've been offered the role of, 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 I've been offered a Broadway job that starts in like two weeks. Uh, do we have a, do we have a theater yet? And he said, go do it. Congratulations. And of course it all worked out for the best because it did. Jeremy in that role, it does things that I'm not capable of. And his <laughs> it was just a much, much better casting for that particular part. But I'm so glad that I was a part of it and I got to have that experience and, and, you know, shepherd it along for the small amount of time that I did. Of course. Of course. And American idiot just in the same vein of like rent and spring awakening it was like one of those moments for so many people um i've never seen it it's one of those things that i love the album with all my heart i've listened to it so many times it's that your version of everything on there is so good the song what's her name makes me cry every time it's just such a beautiful show so my first the first thing i got to do after i said yes to, to the job was they flew me out to las vegas and i learned how to fly on wires for a song uh called extraordinary girl where we have a, like an aerial ballet and i've never done that before so i'm in vegas i'm meeting my castmates just the few that are in that in that sequence and then from there i flew to la and i got to sing on stage at the grammy awards with green day right the whole cast was on stage with with green day and it was just like i'm just one of the group so i wasn't like featured like the girls were like some of the girl solos like rebecca and mary and christina they all actually walked out on stage alone like the song starts with, with rebecca naomi jones singing do you know what we're fighting for and it's her by herself at the grammy awards at the staples center in la with thirty thousand <laughs> people and most of them are celebrities on the ground floor and rebecca this is before rebecca had become like you know as big as she has become in the last few years Oh, yeah. Singing Grammys. I mean, it was insane. So I got to do that. Then I just got swept into the group. And um, the show for me was uh, it was the best shape I have ever or will ever be in because it was nonstop punching and kicking and punk and angry and like expression. And of course, flying on wires really works your core like crazy, oh, yeah. especially when you're singing too at the same time. So another soldier, right? It's another soldier. Another soldier. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I, uh, I, I loved it. And it was a, another great year of my life uh, for sure to, to be a part of that group and to have the fans response. It was this really cool crossover of like, there were theater fans who were into that kind of like not so legit sound. Mm-hmm. And then there were lots of green day fans who got brought over and were, you know, they didn't know how to behave in a theater. So they were like singing along and they were like, you know, Woo! but that's what you want. It was like a rock show. It really was uh-huh. so cool. And then of course, like, they had Billy Joe came in and, and did the show. And I mean, it was just nuts to have that. You know, we, we, we always were like, wouldn't that be crazy if, and then it happened. He came in for a week in September and it was the week of my birthday, actually. So I was oh, like, wow. on the night that I got, they sang happy birthday to me, which is the thing that, you know, and you're in a show, everybody sings happy birthday, like at some point before the show. And so one of the people was Billy Joe, which is cool. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, then, uh, and then he came back for a, like a much longer run uh, in January uh, of the following year. Um, and then didn't Melissa Etheridge do it too? Melissa Etheridge came in, uh, a guy named Davey Havoc who sings for a band called AFI. We had some like cool stunt casting and then it came back, it came back into my life this past year because, um, when Michael and I were doing a workshop for swept away, Michael Mayer, I, I had this idea that we could, that it was going to be a 10 year reunion. Uh, it was it was a ten year ten years from when we opened. We opened in uh, April of 2010. April of 2020 was was on the horizon. This was now like the fall of summer of of 2019. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if we did a like a reunion concert where I got everybody that I could get, and we performed it on a stage somewhere. We book a theater for one night. We sell tickets, and all the money goes to a uh, a political make it a political fundraiser yes. for the Democratic Party or Swing Left or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Michael went went for it. And so all of a sudden we had. A, it was my first producing job and hey. I got everybody on board. I got the entire original Broadway cast and a ton of the, uh, all the tours. Like we had the non-equity tour. We had the equity tour. I had like hundreds of people who were going to be a part of this. Michael and I had meetings every few days to, to put it all together. We got all the designers on board. And of course now we're getting into like February, March, 2020. We had our first big production meeting, uh, at the, uh, uh, at the Drew Jamson offices and everything was moving right along. And then they started closing theaters and mm. we had to shutter the project. But the great thing was several months later, Michael and I got together and we were like, we have to do something cause it's coming. Um, and by then we were familiar with these zoom format things. And so we ended up doing a, uh, a zoom live event. We partnered with swing left. Uh, we had people writing letters to potential voters all over the country and it was a really awesome time because I got to, I got to make something where I was like featured in a way, but I wasn't like, um, it was much more producing, much more like working than it was like performing. And I felt so much satisfaction from that. And it, it really, it was a really wonderful communal moment for everybody from all the different companies as well. That is oh, amazing. That's so cool. It was great. And I'm, I, I, I was really was so deep in American idiot land doing it. You know, I was like digging through old photos and I had to put together a couple of videos and I had, to, I had to produce a bunch of stuff. And I was communicating with my, my old castmates and we were all, all of our text chains were, text chains were alive again. And we were, <laughs> it was like old times. And then it ended and it was just like, no, you know, we'll, we'll do it again in, yeah. in a few years. Maybe we'll do the actual live concert at some point. Oh, that would be such a treat. How beautiful to be able to revisit an experience in your life. You know, I have things like that that I remember from college or casts of shows and things. And that magic is there. And then it, it sort of lives in that moment. But to be able to revisit it is so special. It really is. And 
and um, it not was not only just meaningful to us, but to a lot of fans. Like I, oh, I every job I've had since then, there are people who are there who look a little different than your normal theater color, uh-huh. a little bit different, <laughs> and they will lean in over that railing and say, "I just want to say my first show was American oh. Idiot," or "I loved you," and that and that meant so much to me, and it saved me. There was a group of people. You know, we had a, a lottery like many shows do, and on that particular show, the fans who would wait in the lotto line uh, would become friendly with each other and they were all kind of misfits mm-hmm. and they, before you knew it, they were all bringing each other. Like you get two tickets for, for the lotto. You only pay $26, but you get to front row seats. And so we got to see them every night who had won the lotto right there in front of us. Uh. A lot of it is if we break the fourth wall, we're talking to the audience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was a real beautiful thing to see those relationships forge and the people who found a group and found something where they had been missing it. So I have a lot of, a, a lot of love for that show for that reason. That's so cool. I'm also thinking about how, you know, political American idiot is anyway. So for you guys to do something with swing left just feels like a perfect match. It was, it really, it was, it was, I think that's why when I thought of it and Michael immediately was like, well, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. It's about, (laughs) it's about a group of people who are upset with their country. And, um, the irony was that that show, when we, when the album was written, it was a response to the Bush administration. Right. But when the, when the show was on stage, it was the middle of the Obama years. Mm -hmm. So it was not, the, the vibe was not the same. It didn't echo what was happening in real time in the world and in the country. And that's why it made sense to bring it back now. Oh yeah. Talking about another political piece is um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which was the last thing we saw you do. I wish it was, you know, running when everything happened over the summer with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And it will, you know, that has to be in the back of our minds when Broadway comes back. But Talk about a remarkable story that will always be told. You know, it's it's the American tale. It really is, and it's so important. And it, you know, the, you know who needs to see that is the people who are like confused about all that stuff. Absolutely. You know, it's one thing to preach to the choir and to people who are like who get it and who understand that um, while people are different, like we can accept others for those differences. The people who need to see it are the ones who are uh, who have these sort of unforeseen, sort of invis- invisible biases. Uh, that job for me was a really interesting one because I'm used to playing the boy next door, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, all American, good guy, nice guy, the one you're supposed to like. Uh, it's a, it's a quality that has, that has served me really well. It's just like, I, I, I guess there's a likability like inherent as long as I am like being myself yeah. mm-hmm. and that, that, that really works for me. And that was not what they needed for this. <laughs> At least that's what I thought. So uh, uh, Scott Rudin emailed me, um, right when I was finishing Kinky Boots in December of 2017, he emailed me, um, 2018, 2017. Anyway, Scott emailed me. Yeah. Scott emailed me and was like, um, what are you, uh, would you like to come and play the role of Horace Gilmer in a workshop of this, uh, of To Kill a Mockingbird? And I was like, totally. And I, and I read the, book again and I thought wait a minute this is like the mean racist old man (laughs) with like the lazy eye are you sure and I wrote it back I was like I would love to do anything of course I will do this are you sure this is this is the part you mean what they had done was reimagine that character just age wise and and maybe not just age wise but like I think what he wanted was somebody who had an uh on the surface at first glance would just be like seem seemingly normal guy and then in the second act whenever I cross-examine um, Tom Robinson, you see, you really see the teeth come out and you see this true self. So 
instead of getting cheers and laughs and like the things that I'm used to, my goal was eventually to, uh, to get people to feel revulsion, you know, and, and if I could make it audible, if I could get them to gasp out loud or to uh, boo or hiss, it's even better. And, um, it was a weird sense of satisfaction whenever I was, was despicable enough and horrible enough. And it's not in a cartoony way. That's the hard no. thing is that I had to really understand what I was doing, why, why this character would believe these things. So I read mm-hmm. some incredible books that taught me about the sort of untold, very racist history of this country. We all know it's there, but mm-hmm. you don't study it in school. You know, they kind of glance over certain things. Right. And I learned about like this really long stretch of lynchings that used to happen in the South that you hear about, but you don't know much about. And it is just unbelievable. So a couple books I would recommend. Uh, there's one called The Bloody Shirt. Um, and there's one called White Rage. And White Rage in particular is very relevant today because it is about how every time there's progression for people of color, there is an immediate and even stronger pushback from the white elites that are in power to, to like push down whatever advances they've made. And it is obviously, it's all still very real. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, one of the most haunting things about that show that I remember was the way that the jury was portrayed and that it was just an empty jury box. Yeah. Really great. I mean, the whole production was gorgeous and you were fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it like the most successful American play ever in terms of finances? Yeah. You know, it had been performed, a different version of the play had been performed in community theaters all over the country and probably the world. Um, This play, yes. and, And then our version, it broke a lot of records in this, in the time when we were, when I was doing it, when it was running. And of course it will come back and it will have, oh yeah. Uh, you know, it will. I think that that role is Atticus in particular is one that that a lot of big big stars are going to want to play. I think so. Oh yeah. I wanted to go back for Ed Harris, but I sadly didn't get a chance to. I love him. Oh my god, that was great. It was good to see. It was cool to see you playing this different kind of character too. You know, I was really scared at first, and then when I started doing it, I was like, oh, this is just a new thing that I get to practice, and I hope that it just allows me new avenues to pursue and not you know, not be buttonholed into. Although, by the way, I'm totally happy playing like the nice guy boy next door. <laughs> the sort of le- leading man, you know, the earnest leading man is a very comfortable place for me, but I think it's always good to challenge. Now, me. switching topics oh, yeah. completely because I feel like we're going to wrap up here in a second, but what do you remember most about playing Meryl Streep's son in The Post? I felt so lucky on that show. Oh my God. I, I, I my, <laughs> my manager called me, um, I was in the car driving into the city with my wife and kids and my manager called and she was like, Hey, um, are, are you, what's your summer look like? And I was like, well, we have a trip to a family reunion in June, but why? <laughs> she was like, I think I have a job offer coming today. Uh, so is it, is it movable? I was like, of course, if it's worth it. She was like, yeah, just trust me. So then we got off the phone and my wife and I were like, what's it going to be? I was like, maybe, maybe it's an arc on, I mean, offers are not something that happen all the time. Like I sure they, they happen, yeah. but it's not like a, um, a totally regular thing. So I just thought, well, maybe it's like somebody I've worked with before and it's a, uh, like an arc on a cool, like series, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> um, like a, like a non-network series. Cause it's summer. Like we did a lot of like sleuthing, like oh, it's gotta be HBO or Showtime or like one of those uh-huh. maybe Netflix. And, um, they called back and she was like, so, uh, you, you've been offered the role of Meryl Streep's son in a, uh, in a movie called the post about a uh, about the the Pentagon Papers in 1971. Uh, the leads are Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, and you're playing her son. And I was like, 
<laughs> what? How? How? What offer? What? That she was like Spielberg. Mm. So I did a TV show that you mentioned at the beginning called Minority Report, which was yes. ran for one season. It's there's some people liked it, but didn't get a lot of people watching it. But Mr. Spielberg was the executive producer of that show because Minority Report is his property. Oh, the movie with Tom Cruise. Yes. So his name was above the title of the TV show. Now, I never met him during that. I thought once I got the job and once we started shooting uh, in Vancouver, I was like, maybe he'll come into the set. Or maybe I'll get to meet Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and he never did. And I just thought, oh, well, you know, at least it's cool that I know that he like helped choose me for the role. And he watched everything before it went to, you know, it went to, to air. He, he supervised everything from, from where he was. And so to know that he thought of me to play this little part. It wasn't a big part, but it's a big movie. It's an important movie. And uh, what he said whenever, you know, to be friendly with him on that set was a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing to just be like in a, on a set. And it's like, it's not just like you and him and Meryl and Tom. It's like Bradley Whitford and David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and Tracy Letts. And I mean, you name it, you know, Matthew so Stuhlbarg Reese. was in that, right? Yeah, Stuhlbarg. And, and so these people that like some of whom I'm friendly with, like Michael is a friend of mine and, and, and I've known him for years. But just to, and everybody felt the same way. We were all looking around at each other going like, how crazy is this? <laughs> um, there's tons of people I'm leaving off that list because what Stephen said uh, on set was that this is the first movie he's ever done where he ne nobody said no. Every single person he asked, he got his first choice on every, every single part. That is so cool. Um, remember, it's a movie about free speech. It's about the newspapers being, uh, you know, uh, having a voice and like, and, and publishing something that was, uh, that had been a secret. The government was mm -hmm. holding secrets and this newspaper wanted to publish it. And uh, so this is in 2017, 2018, 2019. Yeah. Like, it's very relevant stuff. Where, we, where, where we've got a president oh, calling everything fake news. I think it couldn't have been a better timed film, right? Everybody was on board. So to answer your question, working with yeah. her specifically was uh, she was very kind to me and loving towards me. And I think part of that was just who she is. And a part of that was that she had a loving relationship, like her character loved her son. Mm -hmm. And so I was the benef the beneficiary of that. I know from stories from Anne Hathaway, um, uh, who, who, who she's talked about this in, in, you know, interviews, but I've also talked to her in person about it, that Meryl is very method. And so when she was doing the devil wears Prada, she was very mean, to or not mean, but just sort of uh, disregarded. Okay, cold, that's the better word. Um, to Annie, um, but she told her ahead of time, right? She was like, okay. "I'm going to tell you right now, I love you. I'm a huge fan. But once we start shooting this, I'm probably not going to be that nice to you. But wow. know that I love you, and I can't wait to go hang out with you." <laughs> so I never had to deal with a speech like that because we had a good relationship in the movie, and therefore a great relationship on set. So what, I, I guess I would say, Meryl. Every single take was different. She never did the same thing twice, wow. <laughs> ever. And Stephen would walk in and he would say something. He, and of course, I'm right there. Where the, the couple scenes that I had, one of the scenes I had with her was cut for whatever reason. Um, but I was there a lot. I was in the background typing on a typewriter. You know, it's like I happened to have a spot in the newsroom where uh, Stephen didn't want to use any stand-in. So all of us, including Bob Odenkirk and Brad Whitford, <laughs> were all like. 20, 30, 50 feet in the background of a shot. We never would see our faces, but we all were there. Improving in the background of a Steven Spielberg movie, you know, like coming up with like dialogue that nobody's going to hear because we're not mic'd. Right. But Meryl was just so, just to watch her was inspiring. And of course, that's not news right. to anybody. Yeah. But, uh, 
sweet, kind, kind person and, and one of the best, the, probably the best that we've, that we've I got. agree. Wow. Stark, you know who you are when you can call Anne Hathaway, Annie Hathaway, <laughs> because that is so cool. She's amazing. Gosh, if we had another, another hour, we'd ask you all about everything else, but we'll just have to have you back at some point. Let's do it. I would love that. This is really nice. And and not just because I'm talking to people who I'm not related to, but but it's really great to talk uh, stuff, to talk about stuff with you guys. And it's, it's, you're very good at this. So it's very easy. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's bad. I'm trying to think, is there anything we haven't touched on that I'm like, I need to ask Stark, but I think we've touched on most of it. Yeah. It's a lot. There's, I'm sure there's so much more, but this has been really good. <laughs> Thank you. Great. So we like to wrap up on a dose of drama, which is that little, it could be a pop culture recommendation. It could be something that's on your mind from the conversation you haven't had a chance to get to, to leave our listeners feeling a little, little dramatic or maybe a little excited about something at the end of this conversation. And I'm going to kick it off today because this past week, we got some shocking Broadway news that Mean Girls is sadly not going to reopen when Broadway comes back. And I have to say, like drama, because they did that NBC Broadway, you know, thing that came on TV hosted by Tina Fey. Mean Girls was such an important part of that. I mean, I know that they used some of the national tour cast and they had Renee Rapp from the Broadway company, but I was actually shocked to see that they're not going to be reopening maybe in fall 2021, like Fauci said is possible, but um, I was shook. And that's all I have to say. It's drama. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I know they weren't doing amazingly well in terms of box office before the shutdown, but still that's, that's a musical that I think people would want to go see just because it's one of those recognizable titles that they're like, what are we going to see on Broadway now that it's back? Like, Oh, I've always wanted to see the mean girls musical or, you know, things need to stay around. Think familiar entities need to be there for people to, not just go back to the things that they love, but yeah, I, it's always a bummer when you see that and, and when you, when you see that news and over the year that we've been through, uh, things keep just falling. And it's, I mean, you can't expect something that I think about a lot is that when things do come back, the shows that are able to start up again, so many of these actors and the people who work on the show, not just the actors, the dressers, the, the, the people who work in the hair department, the costume department, they don't live in New York anymore, you guys. Yeah. They moved. They can't afford it. And like when just picking up the phone and saying, you guys, we're going back, it doesn't mm-hmm. do it. You, you, there's going to be recastings. There's going to be different companies. It's not going to be the same. And it's really like, it's those are the moments when I feel like really, really bummed out about like what this has done longer term to yeah. the city and the, and the community that we're part I of. Know. Oh, my God. So well said. Yeah, we'll feel the implications for years, I feel. Um, my dose of drama is something we actually didn't get the chance to talk about, but I want to pick your brain on one day, Stark, is The Miraculous Year, which was sort of this precursor to Smash. And it's like this, the word, things of legend with Norbert Leo Butts, Patti Lapone, mm-hmm. you. It's rumored to be this piece about Sondheim, maybe, we don't know. And it was a show that you were going to be in yeah. It just never, never went. Um, we shot the pilot okay. and, uh, and it was another one of those. I was doing American idiot at the time. I was, uh, uh, it was pretty cool just to like, to be working in a Broadway musical and to get cast in a pilot for a show about a Broadway musical. Um, Norbert was this sort of like very cerebral tortured, uh, uh, I guess sort of Sondheim type. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I played his assistant. Uh, Patty Lapone played my mom. Okay. 
So I played Patty's son, which was nuts. There was a, uh, there was a, a restaurant right next to uh, the St. James uh, called Angus McIndoe, which was a theater. It was like Sardi's. It was like one of the mm-hmm. big theater hangouts. It's this like three or four story, very skinny little restaurant that had a bar on one level or two levels. And it was like a, a post-show drink, like a Joe Allen type place. Uh-huh. Rest and in peace though. It's gone now, right? I know. It was, it's now it's a Chinese restaurant or something. Okay. Um, but at the time it was there and it was kicking. And so that was one of the locations for the shoot. So instead of going to my show, I instead went next door to shoot the dinner scene at Angus. And of course, these are all real world places. They don't have to dress it and make it make pretend it's something else. We were at Angus, right? Right. Um, that show was a very cool, uh, you know, couple weeks in my life. And in the end, the when I finally got to see the finished product, it just didn't sort of, you know, Catherine Bigelow directed it, who's an incredible wow. director. Oh, wow. and, um, there's a lot of other big names in the show uh, that that are that have, you know, were already big or have gone on to become big. I, uh, it was definitely precursor to Smash. That's what it felt like to me. Too. Uh-huh. When I saw Smash, I was like, oh, this is going to be the one. This is, uh-huh. this is going to make it. Because there was like a show directed. within the show too, right? Like wasn't Adam was. Gettle writing... The musical yes. in there? Yeah. There was a musical within the show that uh, we saw little bits and pieces of, but it was uh, it was a trip to like, and now to be I on first, on a, be like friends, not friends, but to be friendly with Patty when I see her, like when if I'm at an event or something and she's there, I can walk up and say hi and she knows who I am, which is insane. That is so crazy. She'll probably call you doll and, and embrace yeah. you. And oh, I yeah. love it. All right, good. Well, I'm glad I got to ask about that because that's, Norbert is another one of my all-time heroes. So. Oh my God. Amazing. Uh, my dose of drama. Yes. First, I have two. The first one is a, is a follow up from our friend Nathaniel Hill. Yeah. Have you watched Call My Agent? No, Netflix but yet? I saw that season okay. four is coming. It is. I think I, I think I just read that. I think it's coming this month. Yes. Uh, amazing. Because I I'm in it. When I'm halfway through season three right now. Wow. It, it, that's another one that came through the the grapevine for me and, and times when we're like, well, we have not much else to do besides raise kids and watch uh, mm-hmm. shows. Um, it's so good. Okay. You have to watch it. It's so good. All right. And everything that is true. It's about like, it, it's about our world, but it's, it, there's a distance because it's in French because it's in France, because it, of course it's not totally realistic, but it feels so it's there's a real like sense of familiarity with like the, what's happening and and being like working it as I've been able to work in TV and film to like understand those relationships contracts agents working on a set to see it and the characters you care about them from the very beginning like in one episode you are invested and you care please okay. please watch it please all right we'll okay. let you know um, now you've got two people talking about it okay at least you'll have more if you don't watch it. <laughs> um, my dose of my dose of drama is in the wake of the things that have happened uh, at the Capitol recently and um, misinformation and the things that led those people to do what they did. Uh, it is of my belief that, is that a phrase? It is of my belief. No, it is my yeah. belief. Yeah. It is my, <laughs> it's my belief that, that it, the world we're living in today with the social media, um, that kind of an event would not have happened without social media. So for all the good things the social media gives us, there are, are a lot of really bad things as well. Um, when Facebook first started, I got on it like everybody else did. And after a few years, I found myself waking up in the morning, checking my email, then checking my Facebook, right? 
And then I would end up being sitting on, on Facebook for like way longer than I needed to. Um, and then I started getting, you know, I, I didn't say yes to um, being friends at the time. It was like, you know, you say yes to a friend request. Right. Uh, I don't know if it's still like that now, but um, if I didn't really know the person, I wouldn't say yes uh, because I didn't want them to all of a sudden be able to look at my life and my private stuff, things that I had already accrued, all these, you know, things that I posted that were for my friends. And so I started getting messages on Facebook from people who were like, wow, I'm a fan and I thought you were really cool, but I saw that you blocked my friend request. Now I don't think you're cool anymore. And it was just like, wait a minute. So I, said, I don't need this. Uh, this is, it's just like, it was crossing a line and I just, I didn't want to turn people off. So I just canceled my account. And about a year later, my mom was like, hey, you're back on Facebook. And I said, no, I'm not. She was like, well, I'm, who am I talking to then? So somebody had, uh, started an account with my name, had taken all the pictures they could of me and put them on there, but was pretending to be me. It's one thing to do a, uh, like a fan uh. tribute account, but this was a, an impersonator. And so I uh, saw it. I had to use somebody else's you know, uh, <laughs> login right. to see it. And immediately I was like, all right, this is, I'm going to report this because you can report it. So you click on report this profile. What are you reporting? I'm reporting that they are impersonating somebody else. And then the next thing it asks you to do is put in the URL of the of the Facebook profile that they are impersonating. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't have one. There wasn't, there wasn't one. So I had to, in order to kick this person off and, and get them to stop impersonating me, I had to restart my account. Uh, so I started, by the way, they hold everything off to the side. When you, when you decide you want to deactivate your account, they say, are you sure? And you say, yes. And they say, well, just so you know, we're going to keep everything right here for you. So when you come back, it'll be waiting for you. So cut to, it's a year later. I'm, re, I'm reactivating my account. And they, uh, uh, once it was back on, I was able to type in that URL. They took the person's profile down and then I just changed my name so that it wasn't searchable and I don't sure. use it anymore. And I can say this, I know that people, it's like something they rely on and it's something they really, really like, it's really important to them. I don't miss it at all. It's been many years since I've been on Facebook. It's not a part of my life. It's just not a part of my life. I use Instagram, but it's really just to promote the things that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not better than anybody else for not being on social media, but I want to encourage people to see what it feels like. Just test, just give yourself a test and disengage for a week or two and see if you really that for the first few days, you're going to feel like you really need it. You, you're missing out and you're going to really want to know what's happening out there. I promise you, if something really important is happening, you get a phone call, you get a text, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody will tell you, are you watching what's happening on TV? Just try it because I think, I believe that social media is leading us towards more bad things than good things. That's my dose of drama. Woo! That's, That's true drama. drama. You, you're inspiring me, Stark. I've been thinking about getting rid of my, my dad got rid of his Facebook. Dylan's boyfriend is doing a social media cleanse for a while and today, starting today. today yeah. <laughs> You've made some great points. Well, give it a try. I understand that it is essential. It's part of it. It's like it's part of our fabric now. But I think that if there's a way to just pull back, because when I, uh, in the wake of this event that happened, I recognized somebody in one of the pictures of the mm. Capitol, and I thought, no, 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 no. And I logged on to my pseudonym account on Facebook, mm -hmm. which I don't use. I use it for this purpose, right? To just be like, what's that person up to? I typed in his name. He was there. Somebody I was friends with in high school. He has gone down the rabbit hole. He's full mm. QAnon. He is completely gone. He's gone. And it's not somebody that I have maintained a friendship with, not for that reason, just sure. because of life that happens. It's been many years since I've, uh, yeah. I don't even have his number. 
but the stuff he's posted, it's all he only sees this stuff because he sees it on the on the platform. If he wasn't on the platform, he wouldn't be exposed to it, and he wouldn't be um, he wouldn't be a part of this. He wouldn't have yeah. been there. He's going to go to jail. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like he's, he's proudly posted pictures of himself on the steps of the Capitol right outside oh the door. Oh my God. He live streamed <gasps> it. So yeah. So, so that's chilling. I saw that and it made me go, this is a guy I was, I love him. I was really good friends with him. We hung out all the time in high school and to see that it led it. That's what led him down that road. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it may have been a person who introduced him to it, but if there wasn't, if they were able to, to, I'm going to end with this. If they were able to either like censor it the right way and keep misinformation off of there. Great. It's great to be able to check in on people and, and see what they're up to, but all the other stuff for me, it's not worth it. Well said I'm preach. Wow. Oh my God. Thank, Thank you so Stark. much. My dose of drama was very different until, until Wednesday, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to talk about what's yeah. going on. Oh too, yeah. We don't like know? to shy away from it at all, wow. but Anyway, thank you so much for doing our podcast, Stark. For real, you are such a thank nice, you. genuine guy, and I, I'm seriously so grateful. For real. Well, thank you, and um, you will from now on be a part of the, uh, be on the recipient list of those Christmas cards. So you're getting them from now on. The greatest honor we could imagine. Thank you. <laughs> speaking of social media, yeah. Speaking of social we media, follow Stark. <laughs> is it on Twitter yeah. and Instagram? Are you on both? Uh, yeah, my Twitter, I love that I'm doing it. I don't use it, but if you want to say it, my Twitter is at Stark Sands and the Instagram, and this is just for the purposes of watching, looking at those yes. cards, right? Yeah. Is uh, at Stark, Stark Weather. Weather. That's cool. right. I, I love, love it. it. And of course, we're at The Drama Podcast. Everyone's got to follow us to check out all the good stuff and we'll be spreading the good word. This is what social media is for, for stuff like this, to, to find out about this podcast and what you guys are up to. And oh, like I love that. it. Well, thanks for your endorsement. It means the world you came on, Stark. And Connor, I'll see you next time. Drama!